0: We're going to read from God's Word now, reading from Mark chapter 14, verse 32 down to verse 52. And our prayer is that as we sit under God's Word this morning, that God would begin and continue to prepare our hearts for coming to His table uh, next Sunday morning. Um, so we're going to read from Mark chapter 14, verse 32 down to verse 52. And you'll see when we get to it, verses 51 and 52, they're, they're a, bit, um, a bit strange, um, and uh, hopefully we'll see a very small glimpse into what, the, what I think is, is being said in these two verses, and you'll realize when we get to the two, you'll realize why I said they're a bit strange, unless you know them already. But that's Mark chapter 14, verse 32, down to verse 52. Let's listen to God's word together. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough, the hour has come, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us go be going, see, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him under, away under guard." And the young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Amen. May God bless to us the reading of his holy word. Just before the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has been with his disciples and they've celebrated the Passover. And actually it worked well, I think it was last Sunday we did that wee change of children's talk where we we talked about the children being under the the blood of Jesus and how that's an image that we see in Exodus where um, they were to put the the blood of the lamb on their doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over. And from that, they they then went on to get freedom from the the slavery that they endured in Egypt. And and, um, they were to remember as God's free people um, the Passover and have a Passover meal and remember and celebrate to thank the Lord for um, freeing them from slavery. And from this meal we we see the institution, from the Passover meal that Jesus celebrated with his disciples, we see the institution of the Lord's Supper or communion as it's also knowing which we will celebrate and remember next uh, Sunday, God willing. And then from that, from the Lord's Supper being instituted, Jesus goes on to tell Peter that Peter is going to deny him three times. And then they, we read in verse 32 of our passage this morning, went to a place called Gethsemane. They being Jesus and 11 of the disciples. Why is there 11? Because there's normally 12. Well, one of them was away between Jesus at this time, Judas, and he appears at the tail end of the passage of scripture that we've read this morning. So Jesus and the 11 head to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus says to them, sit here while I pray. Gethsemane is recorded in other gospel accounts and, and some of it where I refer to you'll go well that's not actually the passage that uh, we've read this morning but trust me or you can look if you don't trust me you'll see it in the other gospel accounts that, uh, where Gethsemane is mentioned where this, um, st- where this um, story and events are, are recorded. In John's gospel we read that it's a garden that's why it's called the garden of Gethsemane. Uh, and it was situated on the lower slopes of the western side of the Mount of Olives. And it was somewhere where Jesus often went. We read in John's account, Judas knew Jesus went here often with his disciples. And hence why Judas probably knew to go to the Garden of Gethsemane to um, betray Jesus. And as they come into the garden, Jesus says to eight of the disciples to sit. Uh, and he, he was going to go away and pray. And as the eight sit, he tells three of the others to come with him he takes peter james and john to come with him and off they go further into the garden so that he could pray and as he goes to pray and we read in verse 33 he took peter james and john and began to be greatly distressed and troubled jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled And what we read here is staggering. And I think it begins to clothe the verse that we think about at Christmas time, where we read in John chapter 1 that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That here we have Jesus, the Word, the second person of the Trinity. He begins to be greatly distressed and troubled the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and friends what we begin to see here is we begin to see a glimpse into the suffering of christ that he would endure at the cross of calvary we begin to see the suffering of jesus as he begins his journey towards the cross in the greek distressed means um, alarmed and troubled is a, is a strong term pointing to severe distress and anguish. That's how Jesus was feeling at this moment. I don't know if you've ever felt alarmed or distressed or, or great anxiety or anguish in overwhelm your body. Well, that's how we feel that Jesus, that's what we read Jesus is feeling at this moment. And what Mark shows us here is that Jesus really felt pain. Not just as he hung on the cross, but also as he approached the cross of Calvary, Jesus began to feel pain. For the suffering of Jesus wasn't just physical. You know, we often think about the nails going through his hands and his feet, and we think about him being hung on the cross and the excruciating physical pain that he had to endure. But here what Mark is showing us is that it's not just physical pain that Jesus had, but there was emotional and mental pain that Jesus was going through as well. The Word became flesh. And Jesus, in his distress and in his trouble, he turns to Peter, James and John in verse 34 and says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And what Jesus says, if we knew our Old Testament really well, and I didn't know my Old Testament that well because it was the commentary that told me this, that actually this is alluding to Psalm 42, where Jesus speaks about his soul being very sorrowful. And in Psalm 42 in verses 5 and 11, what we have is the psalmist says that his soul is downcast and in turmoil. But at the tail end of that though, there comes this cry of hope and faith. An affirmation of that God would pull through for the psalmist. But here what Jesus says is, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Jesus is in distress, he's in anguish, he's overwhelmed by that weight of emotion. And even what we see when Jesus begins to pray, I think it's in verse 30, um, 35, we read that going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed. In those days, the custom would be that prayer is done standing up with your hands outstretched. And the only time that you would pray on the ground is when you were really contending for something. And even in Jesus' physical manifestation here and in his bodily posture, we see how his heart was feeling. He was wrestling with God here. There was a real um, um, wrestling going on within Jesus. He was anxious. He was sorrowful. He was distressed. He was troubled. Even to the point of death he says. And we think of Jesus sometimes as maybe some sort of superhuman, uh, or, or maybe we think of Jesus being some sort of demigod, where um, we think of, of Jesus being, yeah, maybe he was God and man, but he was probably 50% both. But that's not what we know. That's not what we read. That's not what we believe as Christians. We believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man in a perfect union. And what Mark is showing us in these incredible verses that we're reading, we're seeing into the humanity of Jesus. We're catching a glimpse of how Jesus felt in his human nature. Sorrowful. And Mark shows us Jesus' obedience to the will of the Father. It's unbelievable to read. An example that each one of us should follow. Because Jesus goes on to say, not my will, but your will. Even as Jesus is going through those feelings of anxiety and sorrow and, and distress. But friends, this is the amazing thing that Mark is showing us. is This image and glimpse into Jesus' humanity. Fully God, yes, but also fully man. He wept. He was anxious, he feared, he bled. And friends, this is good news. Do you know why? Because it means he was like us. Because he is our representative before God Almighty. He was fully like us. He became one of us. He took on flesh, but yet without sin. And friends, he has truly, as the writer of the Hebrews says, he suffered in every way that we do. And Jesus falls on the ground and he prays and he says, Abba Father, verse 36, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. I want you to stop there for a moment. And if you're a parent this morning, or if you know of children that you love and care about, I want you to imagine what's going on in this moment a father god the father heeding his son pleading with him if there's any other way if there is another way that this can be done let that be the way if there's any way for this cup to pass me by god would you let the cup pass by Could you imagine hearing, we've just sang at the beginning of our service, how deep the Father's love for us. As wounds which mar the chosen one, the Father turns his face away. Think about those words you've just sang. Picture the garden of Gethsemane. We have God the Son on, on, on his face, on his knees, on the ground, pleading with God the Father. If there's any other way, in his trouble, in his distress, in his anxiousness, in his sorrow, And the father sees his son. But the will of the father is that this cup wouldn't pass his son by. But actually, that his son would take this cup and drink it dry. No wonder we sing how deep the father's love for us. Because it was the father's will that his son took your punishment because there was no other way there was no other way for your redemption there was no other way for your salvation this was the only way possible because the price for sin had to be paid it had to and this was the only way God's wrath had to be satisfied The cup of God's wrath. And that's what this cup. We see it in the psalmist. Where we talk about the cup of God's wrath. That's what this cup is referring to. And identifying here. Is the cup of God's wrath. It had to be satisfied. The debt for sin friends. It had to be paid. And the will of the father was. That his son would drink it on your behalf. So that. His dwelling could be with you so that you could be co-heirs with the Son of God and adopted into his family. And you could enjoy the bounty of the Father and all the blessings of life eternal and life everlasting. There was no other way. But why? Why did he do it? Why did he let it happen? Why did the father allow the son to endure this and go through this? And why did the son give his life? Why did the son submit to the will of the father? Because Jesus wasn't peer pressured into this. Don't hear me wrong. Why did the son submit to the father's will and become the lamb that would take away the sins of the world? Friends, simply for this staggering and mind-blowing reason. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. That's why. How deep the father's love for us. How vast beyond all measures. His love was so much and so deep and so wide. That his will was his son would drink this cup in your place. So that you could partake in the new cup. The cup of the new covenant. Which has been sealed by the blood of Jesus. The anguish Jesus felt was not by the indifference of humanity. Nor was it that Judas was about to betray him with a kiss. Nor was it about the disciples falling asleep on numerous occasions. What was fueling the anguish of Christ's soul. And causing him to be so troubled and distressed is revealed in verse 35. Remove this cup from me. He says, why? If it were possible, verse 35, the hour might pass from him. That's what he was praying about. That the hour might pass from him. And this hour refers to the time set aside by God where the Messiah would fulfill his missional purpose and redeem humanity. Where the Messiah would accomplish his purpose. Friends, why is he called Jesus? You will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's why he came. That was the hour that Jesus was talking about here. He would do it by sacrificing himself and the place of his people, by becoming the propitiation for our sins, by being a ransom for many. And why was this causing such anguish? For the first time in all eternity, he would experience separation from God the Father. The Son we'd have the face of the Father turn away from Him. Our sin would be placed upon Him, and the Father can't look upon sin. We read in 2 Corinthians 5 that He who knew no sin became sin for us. And just the sheer thought of this, just the the, the sheer nearness of the cross, And I don't even just mean the physical torture he would go through, but the separation from his father that he's enjoyed from all eternity. As sins were placed upon the Lamb of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as sins were placed upon him, the wrath of God would be satisfied. And friends, if we had even the slightest and I mean the slightest idea and notion of how ugly sin is in the sight of God the Father, and if we even began to slightly um, try and imagine what experiencing the wrath of God would be like, friends, we too would be lying on the ground prostrate before him and, and, and pleading with him, let there be another way. But here we have the Son. And in his prayer, what does he say? But yet not what I will, but your will. Not what I will, but what you will. The son submits to the will of the father. And Luke's account tells us just how troubled Jesus was. Just how troubled he was. Because we read in Luke's account that he began to sweat drops of blood. And sweating blood is a rare but a very real medical condition, which is called hematohydrosis, which occurs due to severe and extreme levels of stress. Such was the pressure and the weight that Jesus was under that he began to physically sweat drops of blood. And it's caused by the levels and high levels of stress and anxiety and causing the the blood vessels around your sweat glands to burst, such as the feeling of tension within your body. That's what Jesus was going through for you. And how does he respond just as we see when the disciples say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. He shows us this life-giving and principle that we need to adopt. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we see Jesus say the same, not my will, but your will be done. Friends, prayer isn't us bringing a wish list to God. But it's us aligning with the agenda of heaven. And Jesus wasn't forced to do this. He lay aside his glory. He submitted to the will of the Father. He laid down his life as an atoning sacrifice. And as Christ looks to bring in the new creation, which will be achieved by his death, friends, we see a second garden. We think back to the first garden in Genesis, the Garden of Eden. And we read of the first garden uh, of Eden, we see Adam reject the will of God and he said to God, not your will but mine. And he eats the fruit and he turns his back in rebellion. But here we have the second Adam as Jesus is referred to in the garden of Gethsemane. And he says the complete opposite to the first Adam. The second Adam, Jesus, our Messiah, our Redeemer, he says, not my will but your will. And he doesn't eat a fruit. What he does is he takes. He bears the sin of the world upon him. And in doing so, he bears the fruit that the vine was always meant to bear. And Jesus returns to his disciples a number of times and he finds them asleep. And then in verse 42, he says, rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. He doesn't flee. He doesn't run away. He doesn't say, disciples, let's go quickly. I need to get out of here. But like a lamb led to the slaughter that is silent before its shearers, as Isaiah 53 says, the lamb walks towards the one who would betray him. And don't miss this. Jesus has, yes, been wrestling with the will of the Father. But what we see here is that he is completely submitted to it. And we see in this beautiful, and we could very easily miss it. Friends, it isn't death and sin that lays a hold of Jesus but it's Jesus who lays hold of death and sin. Let us be going. I've got a job to do. And we see who's in complete control here. Jesus himself. As he's betrayed, we, we, we see his betrayal in other accounts of the gospels as well. And, and in, in John, we read three times that Jesus declares, I am. And the, the, the way that that is coined is ego Amy. And we thought a number of, uh, probably over a year ago, we looked at the I, I am sayings uh, of Jesus within John's gospel. Uh, and here, what we, we see is again this reminder and revealing of, of Jesus that, that he is God. That's how God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. I am who I am. And we, we, we know that, that that name is, that phrase is. Uh, put together as the name Yahweh. And and here we have Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane once again declare, I am. Three times he does it. I am. Ego amy. And yes, Jesus was fully human and anxious and sweating drops of blood and sorrowful and distressed and troubled. And yes, he's fully human, but he was fully God at the same time at all moments. Not for one minute did he cease to be God Almighty, not for one minute did he cease to be the great I am, the splendor and majesty of heaven. And this is captured in John's account where Jesus steps forward and all the soldiers who've come to arrest him, they fall before him. They fall to the ground because he was in control at all times. His splendor and majesty still intact. But friends, in this, we begin to see the cost of mercy Because we read in verse 49, all this took place to fulfill the scriptures. It was always God's plan. And we see Judas betray Jesus with a kiss. And Jesus is arrested. And what happens is his disciples, they run away. Off they go. They run. Betrayed by one and abandoned by the others. But friends, we've always been running. We've always been running. That's why Jesus had to come to seek and save that which was lost. And then we have, like I said, this really bizarre wee bit at the end in verses fifty one and fifty two. A young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he he left the linen cloth and ran away naked what is going on here? Well, we don't know who this man is. There's speculation that it might be different people, but the reality is we don't know. But what we do know is that he was following from a distance. He wasn't one of the 12. He wasn't one of Jesus' disciples. What we do know was that he was obviously wealthy. He was rich because it was only wealthy people that that wore linen undergarments. We know that he had got ready in a rush because he only got his linen undergarments on, and he's obviously not um, lived too far away from the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, because he had time to throw on his linen garments and probably come out and see uh, what commotion was taking place. And what we do know is that this man, he was seized, and he runs away, leaving his linen cloth behind, and he runs away into the night, the night in the darkness, naked. We read in Amos 2, in a passage that is all about the judgment of God, we read at the very end of Amos 2, he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. What is going on here? There's probably lots of different things we could pull together. I've seen people liken it to the linen cloth that's left in the grave. There's people that speak about, you know, the nakedness in the garden, how we um, before soon entered the world, we were naked, and it's only because of shame that we've dressed ourselves in clothing. But what I see from this is that, friends, it doesn't matter how much this man would have paid for this expensive linen garment. It doesn't matter. Before the Lord, before God in his judgment, it is a filthy rag. It could have been the most expensive designer linen garment that this world had to offer. But before the pure God of heaven, it is as though it is a filthy rag. And what we see the Lord do with our filthy rags is he takes them and he places them on Jesus. We've seen Jesus wrestle in the garden of Gethsemane. We've seen Jesus, the second Adam, say the complete opposite to the first. And he says, God, not what I will, but your will be done. He doesn't pass the cup of God's wrath, but in our place, friends, he takes it. And in the garden, he knew that he would be condemned guilty before the Lord in our place. And what happens at the cross of Calvary, friends, is the majestic one of heaven who took on flesh, is draped in our filthy rags. And God hath closed us because of Christ in the righteousness of Christ. He's taken our filthy rags and he's adorned us in the righteousness of Jesus. So we stand before him justified, clean, and pure. And as you come to communion next Sunday, I pray this week, that you realize, remember, and rediscover that it's in royal robes that you don't deserve. That Jesus has taken your filthy rags. They've been placed upon him, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. And the father turned his face away so that the father's face could shine upon you. In royal robes we don't deserve. Friends, lay your all before him now I pray. Let us pray. Lord, words fail us. God, words fail us. What a cost mercy had. How costly is your amazing grace. And Lord, we've seen this morning in the Garden of Gethsemane, we've seen Jesus wrestle, anxious to the point of sweating drops of blood, just at the sheer thought and the nearness of experiencing separation from the Father as your wrath is poured out upon him, as our sins were laid upon him. God, we thank you. Jesus, we praise your name this morning, that although you were the king of kings, full of majesty, that you took on flesh, and that you have suffered in every way that we do, so that we through faith in your atoning works could be justified could be redeemed could be adopted and become co-heirs with you god break our hearts this morning i pray bring us to the foot of the cross Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we thank you. Jesus, we owe you everything. And God, I thank you for your love. Thank you that in your love, you sent your, cross, your son to the cross in our place so that we could have life and life in all of its fullness. And God, I pray that you would forgive us for neglecting the cross and for making idols out of things that have no substance or meaning. But I pray in this very moment, Jesus, that by your Spirit, that you would touch our hearts. That you would remind us that we are dressed in royal robes that we do not deserve. And we ask these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen. We conclude our time together this morning by singing King of Kings, Majesty. Can we leave those words up please for a second can we just sing the, the the chorus one more time just acapella maybe you could start us off here and then we'll just we'll sing acapella <laughs> the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship and presence and power of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. And all God's people said,